You're listening to audio recorded at Mount Air First Christian Church. For more resources or to contact us, look us up at www.mountairfirstchristianchurch.org. Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 through 21. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God stands forever. So one of the things we must confront really at all times when we read the scriptures is and I have to ask this question, who is the authority, uh, the author of Scripture, who wrote it, and then ultimately, what is their authority? Um, in my past, as a kid in a youth, in youth group, when we'd come across a text like this upon gender roles, really, I would kind of ask, well, what are we supposed to do with a passage like this that talks about men and women? The answer that I would often get is that well, we just kind of know that Paul's a male chauvinist. Paul just doesn't really like women. And um, as a youth, I thought, well, I guess my spiritual leader knows what they're talking about. And so I thought, well, that's too bad. I wish that wasn't the case. But Paul must just be kind of a misogynist. Evidently, Paul really has something against women. However, as I have grown as a Christian and a reader of my Bible... I have found that that's not actually the case. Um, it wasn't, it, though that's a simple answer, that Paul's just a misogynist or a woman hater. It really isn't a historically accurate or a historically thoughtful interpretation. That we teach, you can talk about reading things anachronistically, which is that you, you take your own culture, you take your own current experiences, and then you put it back upon the text and you say, well, that's not, I mean, that can't be because, because of all of these issues today, that can't be the way that it was meant back then. The reason why the idea that Paul was just a woman hater is not historically thoughtful is because when you read historians on the issue of gender and family relationships and the value of children, at this period of time, Paul is actually very progressive, and I, that's a loaded term, but Paul is actually very forward-thinking in his talking in, when he writes about women and husbands and wives and children and next week slaves and masters. Paul is actually very forward-thinking for his culture. We look back at it and we think, my goodness, this is terrible stuff. But back in the day, Paul was actually incredibly forward-thinking, we might say progressive, though that's a loaded term, in the way that he thought on these issues. Women were not regarded as, having, uh, indiv as individuals with many rights, with much to say really at all about their existence. Um, they, did, they, they were at home, they, they did their, their duties at home to support the family, and really the men were the ones that had the value in the family. Children were not regarded as individuals with any sorts of rights at all. Um, 
They were slaves, certainly had no say about their own existence. They had no voice in their future. But Paul, in even risking to address these different individuals, he's working against his own cultural moment. We don't recognize that because we live in modern Western society where we've made all sorts of advances on the equality of the individual. We have our Declaration of Rights. We have our Bill of Rights. So we have this total understanding of the intrinsic value of every individual for their opportunities. And so to take that mindset and then throw it back onto Paul is a totally misread Paul. And that what he actually is working at in his time is elevating the value of every individual. It is misreading Paul. So we have to then ask, is there, or are there any universal concepts found within this text that are still applicable for today? If the author is not just Paul, remember I started with that question, who is the author and then therefore what is its authority? Well, we hold, if you look at our doctrinal statement that we went through, we hold that God is the author of Scripture. And therefore, as he is the author of it, he is, has the authority. It is an authoritative text. And so this is still in here. And so what do we do with this understanding that it isn't as simple as just saying culturally, well, Paul was anti-woman and anti-slaves anti, um, and, and he was pro-slavery. Evidently he was against, he was, didn't wanted children in their relationship with their fathers. And so we can kind of just tuck all that away. We can't really do that. We have to say, to be faithful to the text, with God as its author, what is being said here for our benefit? We, to dismiss this is to dismiss it to our own detriment. But before I even begin, we get into the text here, we have to admit there are nuances here that we're going to have to allow for. Because as soon as we begin a discussion on husbands and wives and their relationship to each other, as soon as we begin a discussion on children and fathers and all of these gender distinctions and gender relationships, we begin to ask, well, what about this situation? What about this situation? And we begin to have raise all sorts of objections. Well, in this certain area, how is this supposed to work out? And you'll be able to think of this morning, even as we talk about this, and maybe even be involved in yourself, certain scenarios where there is a need to work at how to be faithful to these texts and to the whole of Scripture. There will be moments or there'll be ideas or situations, scenarios you'll be able to think of where some nuance is needed. We have to be okay with that. The Bible does not advocate, for example, staying in abusive relationships of various different kinds because of this text. But those few times, these few examples, they do not negate the benefit of a generally applicable principle. Okay, so Paul here is working in a few verses discussing the entirety of the Christian home. So brevity is a great thing. Shortness, keeping things simple is a great thing. And some of you might say, Darren, I'm not sure you believe that, but I do. I try. Brevity is being concise and short and making your point is very good. But it also, it also comes with a lot of generalities that can be mistaken. 
Okay? So those, so, but that does not mean that there isn't benefit to a generally applied, applicable principle. So the first principle, just even in a text like this that I want us to get, is that Christianity doesn't mind its own business, but it gets right into yours in every area of your life. Jesus doesn't mind his own business. He gets into yours. He gets into every little issue of your life. Jesus does not stay in his little corner of your house that is your life. You put up a little banner and say, hey, here's Jesus, here's your corner. Religion, here's your corner. And when I have a need or when I'm really upset or I don't feel good about myself, then I'll run over to my Jesus corner and get some things fixed. But please stay out of all these other areas of my life. I want you out of the kitchen. I want you out of the TV room. Certainly don't come into my bedroom. Jesus, you mind your own business. You stay in your corner. And he doesn't do that. And that's one of the, the, the startling things about a passage like this is that Christianity does get down to the very nitty-gritty of your life. You didn't, do not get to be a public Christian and a private jerk. You don't get to be in public one way. I love Jesus. Yes, I do. And then go home or go into some other areas of your life and say, but in these areas, they're mine. Jesus doesn't allow that. If you are Christ, if he is truly supreme, as this series is talking about, then he has an influence in every area of your life. The gospel message doesn't just polish up the outside of your appearance. It doesn't just fix you at some surface level. Its intention is to invade and permeate down to even the most intimate of relationships that, that are in your life. So we have to just, in this first principle, do you let Jesus into every area of your life? Do you have a certain drawer that's for religion, that's for Jesus, that's for your Christianity? And then you take him out when you need him, when things are tough. But he, he stay in your corner. Stay in your lane, Jesus. Do you let him into every area of your life? Or are there places where you don't think he rules? This text is coming against that. Saying no down to the very way you structure your household, down to the very intimate parts of your life, Jesus is involved there. There is no area of your life you keep to yourself because the, the reason why is not because Jesus is some tyrant who doesn't want you to have whatever, your little fun and all these other rooms of your house and he's going to come crash every party. The reason why Jesus doesn't want you to allow you to keep any area of your life to yourself is because he is working for your ultimate good down to the deepest levels of who you are. You don't want Jesus in one little corner and, the rest of your, and then free to wreck the rest of your life, which is what happens. He is, he is committed to the ultimate good down to the deepest level of your life. This passage in Colossians actually is kind of a shortened version of what Paul says in Ephesians. You can turn your, turn your Bible to Ephesians chapter 5. This is a longer section, and I think it gives a lot of... Um, Flavor or, or a greater description, it's, it, you'll, you'll see the similarities of, of the passage and kind of his order of thinking in the letter that he wrote to Ephesus and the letter he wrote to the church at Colossae. So this is Ephesians chapter 5, um, verse, starting in verse 22. It says this, Wives, 
Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. For he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore... A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Continuing on chapter 6, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Paul's expanded version of the same thing that he's saying there in Colossians found here in the book of Ephesians. And it's in this description of the Christian household that we hear additional comments such as, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, as is fitting in the Lord, and then the lengthy description of what a husband's love for his wife then ought to also look like. The sacrificial love that Christ has for his church is the kind of love that the husband ought to show his wife. So back to the Colossians passage, that, that Ephesian one just kind of gives a lot more description and color. But back to the Colossians, with that Ephesians passage in our mind, the second takeaway is that God has established an order for the flourishing of humanity and we ought to pay attention to it. God has established an order for human flourishing and we ought to pay attention to it. The most basic of understandings of this order is of a family unit being a father, mother, and children. Now, this is where we start thinking of objections. And I, again, there's nuance here. But as a generally applicable rule, this is the basic understanding of, of the Christian home that there is. And now take, think for a second of the struggle that's in front of us when it comes to that issue. Think of the struggle that is in front of us. Not only do we have a battle over what gender roles are in a family, our modern culture is fighting even against this idea how many TV shows can you turn on? How many movies can you go to where this idea of the nuclear family being a mother and a father and their children is blown to pieces? Where it doesn't even matter anymore. In fact, it's being, it's being uh, promoted in many groups that are out there, the idea that actually there's a better way of family. That that's actually restrictive. The, uh, the patriarchal heteronormativity is just... Uh, is just terrible. That's, that's the idea that is being promulgated out there. All of these situations 
that, that um, and these circumstances that are being promoted in contrast or in competition to the idea of what is put forward from an authoritative text from God of what the gender roles, what a family should look like. We can all think of situations where that may not happen, where a mother and a father, maybe a spouse has died. Maybe a spouse has abandoned the other spouse. Maybe a mother or a father has run off and abandoned the family. We, we can all think of situations where that happens. And they are tragic and terrible. And I'm not trying to like make light or dismiss those things as a reality, a very difficult reality in a broken, sinful world. So don't hear me say that this doesn't come with difficulty. But still, the general biblical understanding is of one man, one woman, united in the covenant of marriage. Well, the Ephesians passage says, the man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, united in a covenant of marriage for life, raising children in the stability of that covenant. There are difficult circumstances surrounding this, but it doesn't change God's design and what is best. And that's what the scripture does put forward. But to move on, one of the things underneath this idea that God has established in order for human flourishing is it is important to always keep in focus the, the, the Christian theological understanding of the Imago Dei or the Imago Dei, the image of God. Every individual is created in the image and likeness of God and therefore is worthy of equal dignity and value. That is not the question here. The question isn't who is more valuable in the home, who has more importance. The question is not who is better or who is more worthy. The question is not of value. The question is not if women are more important than men or if fathers are more important than mothers or if children or fathers are more important than children or slaves are more important than owners or masters are more important than, 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 than workers or whatever the categories may be. It's instead simply a question regarding their role in the family. Especially inside of Christ's church. We, we can read in the book of Galatians chapter 3, Paul makes that inside of the church, we are all brothers and sisters. And so there is no fight for who's more important, who's less important. Inside of Christ's church, Paul says in Galatians chapter 3 verse 28, that there is no Jew, no Greek, there is no slave, no free, there is no male nor female, but all are one equal in submission to each other and in understanding to each other, that inside of Christ's church specifically, we are fellow members of the body of Christ and therefore equal in value. Equal in value. But secondly, there is distinction in role. There is distinction in role. Men and women, good and beautiful as they are. And I do think this is important for children to hear even. I, I said it when we were going through our uh, doctrinal study on, on Wednesday nights and we had kids attending it. And I just felt, I, I honestly felt the Holy Spirit say that it, just, it was important to communicate this reality that God has made you a boy or a girl, male or female, and that is a good and beautiful thing. That is a good and beautiful thing. Now, with your gender does come certain parameters. 
There are certain things that as a, as a boy or as a girl, you will not be able to do. I will never be able to give birth to a child. I will not be able to feed that child from my body. That is a parameter around my existence. I will also never be the queen of France. And that's a parameter around my existence. But that's okay. I am who I am. God has made me the way that I am. And though it comes with parameters, that is a good and a beautiful thing. Your masculinity or your femininity are unique to you and they are gifts to you. They are gifts to you and we ought not to rebel against God's good created order in our lives. The term we use in modern language is that we have complementary roles. We have complementary roles. And I think it's helpful language because it doesn't mean that one role is important and one isn't. They complement each other. They work together. It isn't that one's important, one isn't. They both are important. And when they are put together, they are a beautiful complement one to another. I mean, the easiest illustration I could go with is, is meatloaf and scalp potatoes, okay? <laughs> so I had to throw a meatloaf analogy out there, sorry. Meatloaf is wonderful on its own. It's a whole meal. It's just wonder, all on its own. Scalp potatoes with a little ham in there, it's a good meal all on its own. You know what's awesome? When they come together and you put them both on your plate and you have some meat and potatoes. They compliment. Is one better than the other? Well, you might think they are, but we'll get into that discussion. It's a compliment. But more seriously, it's like a dancer. You have a lead dancer, and a, and, a, and a partner that's following. And if they both try to lead, it ends up in a big mess. But one leads, and then that other, they spin the partner off, and they might do a little flourish and comes back, and it dresses the whole thing up and makes the dance beautiful. And it isn't that one role is more important than the other. They complement each other. If you take the idea of a band, think of a full band, and you got a guy back there or a girl back there on the drums, and they, they're upset because they don't get to sing, um, they don't get to run the melody. The person up there on the front singing the mic. Or they don't get to play the, the guitar solo. And they, they're mad because they don't get to play the guitar solo. And the guitar player is mad because they don't get to put down the beat. They don't get to, you know, have all the nice fills and all of this stuff going on. And they're both mad at each other. But they need to live in their complementary roles. That when everyone functions in their specific role... A beautiful band, is a, a, a beautiful symphony goes on. They are complementary to one another. So equality of individuals, distinction in role. And yes, the scripture tells us here, wives submit to your husband. Submit is such a dirty word in our culture today. We hate the idea of submission. I mean, think of all of the craziness this summer was just a lot of it over various issues. But there is certainly this idea of submitting to authority is always bad. Submission is bad. That's not I, Paul's idea behind this word. Mark Maynell in his commentary, he defines submission this way from that Greek word. Submission is one equal person's voluntary acceptance of the authority of another equal person. So it's one equal person's voluntary acceptance of the authority of another equal person. The Bible does put forward a distinction in the Christian family with certain gender roles. The husband, according to Scripture, is to lead and the wife is to respect and submit to that leadership. Now, maybe I'm raising the temperature there. 
because we can think about the abuses that this brings. And this text has been abused. This text has been abused to say, wives, you've got to put up with whatever Tom fool thing your husband wants to do. You need to submit. And it can get into abuse. It can actually bring serious destruction if a wife is put in an abusive situation. And this text is pulled out to the error, I think, and to the detriment of doing injustice to the whole passage. Because the passage does go on. What does verse 19 say in Colossians? Husbands, love your wives. Do not be harsh with them. Men are to love their wives. And Paul goes in greater detail, we read in Ephesians, about what this love is to look like. And it's important to see these commands in relationship one to another. Wives are not called to submit as though that is the end of the conversations. And actually, husbands get far more directives than wives. Husbands get much sterner directive than wives, I would say. They are to love even as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? He gave all he had for the ultimate benefit of his bride. He didn't spare his own life for the benefit of his bride. He loved her so much that he gave away, put aside everything that he had for the benefit of his wife and for their ultimate joy in the final analysis. You can see the beautiful give and take that there is to be in the Christian home, in the Christian marriage. The wife lovingly respecting and honoring her husband as he works lovingly to care and put the needs of his wife and his family first. And in an environment where the husband is loving like Christ loved, the thought of submission is nothing to wrestle against. Because you know that this Christ loves you. You know that this leadership is loving towards you. Children are called to obedience. Again, this can be used for abusive situations. Um, That's not Paul's intent. It's a long tradition in Scripture of children obeying parents and of parents then enforcing obedience and discipline upon their children. And the flip side, it's interesting. We don't have time for it this morning. Fathers specifically are called to not embitter their children or provoke them to anger, but to be involved in their admonition and their growing and training in in the Lord. The third and final takeaway, trying to get through that's the tough stuff, okay? The first is the big idea, God, there's no area of your life that Jesus doesn't want to get involved in. The second big idea is that, yes, um, now I've forgotten it. God has established an order for human flourishing, and we ought to pay attention to it. But the third and final takeaway is for us to live in humble obedience to God's ordering of our lives in every area. If we can't live in obedience to Christ's words here, how can we assume that we'll answer Christ's honest call to give our very lives for him? We'll put on an impasse. If we say, you know, I don't really like what that says. I don't know that I'm going to agree with that text. What are you going to do when you read in Matthew 16, Mark chapter 8, Luke chapter 9, where Jesus says, take up your cross daily and follow me. Where it says, die to yourself and follow me. What are we going to do with that? We shouldn't pretend that we're willing to take up our crosses and follow Christ when we can't let him take our rebellious opinions away. There's great struggle here. I know there's great struggle here. We live in a society that has bowed the knee and sings the praises of the transcendence and authority of the autonomous self. We are in charge. 
My life is mine. What I want, what I desire, what I think, how I feel, that is what is ultimately the authority. We disdain the idea of a transcendent God and we worship the transcendent self. Expressive individualism. The whole idea of submission and self-giving for the good of others is distasteful. We've bought into the siren song of personal autonomy over everything. Expressive individualism. We are to be true to ourselves first and foremost. Ideas like this come to us in phrases. Maybe you've heard some. You've got to, you've got to love yourself before you can love anyone else. Or concepts like self-care. Or maybe you've heard someone say, I'm not happy in the relationship. I've given and given and given. And I need to take care of me before I can take care of anyone else. We've bought into this lie that true happiness is in something less than God himself. J.T. English says it this way in his book, Deep Discipleship. He says, the message of cultural Christianity is that God is merely good to us. Meaning God would do things for us. He'll give us what we want. The idea of cultural Christianity is God is, God, God is good to us. The things we want, he's going to do. The things, the needs we have, the, the wants we have, the way we would like it to be. Cultural Christianity is that God is merely good to us. Continue with this quote. He says, the message of biblical Christianity is that God is good for us. God is good for us. Contrast those against each other. That it is not that God is just good to us, giving us what we want. He's good for us, giving us what is what we need and what is beneficial for our human flourishing. The reason why the structure of the Christian household and the nuclear family that it produces is so off-putting in our culture is because we have bought into the lie that we know where to find our happiness and it's probably not in God and in His ways. The Christian ethic runs counter to this self-centered worldview Instead of husbands and wives finding their joy by seeking it, their joy first, they find their joy by seeking God first, laying themselves aside and their preferences aside. Our mindset is convinced that we have to make sure that we're getting what we want because no one else will make sure that we get what we need and want. Instead of looking to self as the transcendent authority, we need to open our eyes to the supremacy of Christ and his transcendence. This is exactly what Christ modeled for us in his laying down his life for us. Christ, as our Redeemer, loved us, gave himself for us. When we were dead in our sins, he rescued us, not because we deserved it, but because he loved us. Do you know that you can trust him? Even with a text like this, do you know that you can trust him? Do you know that he knows what is best and will do what is ultimately best for those who are his? That's a lot of where the struggle is. Can we trust God and his word that he is not, he is for our ultimate good? Not merely to be good to us, but to be good for us. Not always giving us what we ultimate or immediately want, but giving us what we ultimately need. Do you know that he knows what is best and will do what is ultimately best for those who are his? He will. He already has. Let's trust him with our lives down to every detail of them. 
today. Let's pray. Father, help us. This is such countercultural language, such countercultural thinking, so against our times in so many ways. But Father, the burden is that this church, these people, our families, my family, that Father, we would trust you, that you know what is good, and that we aren't, we aren't in this. We aren't pursuing you just as some sort of way to trick you into getting what we want, but that, Father, we have truly been born again, and our desires are for what is ultimately what is best for us in you, in following you, in loving you, in being obedient to you, in seeking your kingdom more than our kingdom, that you might be glorified in our lives for our ultimate good in you. So Father, out of all that's been said this morning and worked in our lives, in our minds, in our hearts, no matter all the, the um, holdups and the catches and the hesitations we may have felt this morning, I pray that over them all, what you'd be working in every heart is a desire that God, whatever you may ask for, whatever may be required of us to follow you, Father, gladly we lay it down because we know that to lay down even our lives is not to truly have lost if we have gained you, if we have found ourselves to be yours. Press that reality into our hearts and lives this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.